I love dresses. I mean, not on me, of course. I'm not nearly elegant enough to pull it off. But nevertheless, to me, dresses are one of the most elegant pieces of clothing ever invented. And I'll be honest, I like them even more when they change colors. Well, they don't really change colors. It's the way we perceive the colors that can change. You remember that dress from 2016 that looked black and blue to some people and white and gold to others? Well, that's exactly what we'll dive into and explain in this episode. Why do we literally see the world differently? Why does that even happen beyond our consciousness most of the time? And cherry on the cake, how on earth could this be related to priors? Yes, as Bayesian priors. Pascal Wallisch will shed the light on all these topics in this episode. Pascal is a professor of psychology and data science at New York University, where he studies a diverse range of topics, including perception, cognitive diversity, the roots of disagreement, and psychopathy. Originally from Germany, Pascal did his undergraduate studies at the Free University of Berlin. He then received his PhD from the University of Chicago, where he studied visual perception. In addition to scientific articles on psychology and neuroscience, he wrote multiple books on scientific computing and data science. And as you will hear, Pascal is a wonderful science communicator, so that's only normal that he also writes for a general audience at Slate or the Creativity Post and has given public talks at TEDx and Think and Drink. Just a final note before we start, folks. As Murphy's Law predicts, they decided to do some loud works in my building just the day I recorded with Pascal. Thankfully, I have a good mic and an even better editor. Thank you, Marco. But apologies in advance if some hammering still made it through the recording. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 77, recorded January 11, 2023. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, for any info about the podcast, learnbasedstats.com is la place to be, show notes, becoming a corporate sponsor, supporting LBS on Patreon, unlocking Bayesian merch, everything is in there. That's learnbasedstats.com. If with all that info, a Bayesian model is still resisting you, or if you find my voice especially smooth and want me to come and teach Bayesian stats in your company, then reach out at alex.endora at pymc-labs.io or book a call with me at learnbasedance.com. Thanks a lot, folks, and best Bayesian wishes to you all. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo-controlled science like I'm Richard Feynman? Pascal Wallish, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thank you for having me on the show. Yes, thanks a lot for taking the time. Of course. This is already one of my favorite episodes because I loved the way it happened. It was very serendipitous as probably you can guess I'm a voracious podcast listener and I particularly love the You Are Not So Smart podcast of David McCraney. I heard you on that podcast and first like the content of this episode was really really good and I was the edge of my seat and wanted to know what's gonna happen and David did an amazing work at that and but also then uh, like it appeared to me that it's actually really related to Bayesian's thinking also. Very relevant, yes. And so I was like, okay, we need to dive deeper into that on the show. And I contacted you and you said, yes, very, very enthusiastically. So that's super cool. Yes, happy to do it. Awesome. Yeah, well, let's do that. But first, as usual, what's your origin story? How did you come to the world of neuroscience and psychology and 
how sinuous of a path was that? I think it was neither sinuous nor straight. It was kind of a random walk. And it is quite a long story. So I'll, so I'll actually try to make it as short as I can. Yes. And that is, I was a math and physics major in high school in Germany. Yes. But from that, I mostly realized I just don't, don't, I don't want to do math or physics for reasons we can get into later if you want to, but I could not see myself doing that for the rest of my life. Now, interesting enough, there was, this was like in the, in the late 90s, so computers were really big, and I was actually very interested in computers and computer science. So naturally, I decided to study psychology, which was a big surprise to everybody, including myself. Doing that for a couple of years in Berlin, I realized that I want to go deeper, and I want to go deep, meaning into the brain. And so I decided to do a PhD in neuroscience in Chicago. And so that's how that happened. But in hindsight, again, in the 90s, computers were big, so naturally I go into psychology. In the early 2000s, the internet is starting to get big, so naturally I go into neuroscience. So strange, yes, but okay. So it was a very circuitous and kind of a random walk, but I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, from what I know from you, which is like basically the articles on your blog that I, I read through, and also, of course, the, the podcast episode with David. That was very, yeah, that, I can feel your passion. So that's super enthusiastic. Very passionate. And by the way, so that's actually what I was lacking. So, you know, I definitely appreciate the, uh, I guess, beauty of math, yes, and the rigor of, of physics, but the passion was not there, yes. So I do have passion for some aspects. I really like number theory, for instance, but not this all-inclusive passion for the whole field, yes. Yeah, I feel that you seem to be a very curious person. Oh, yeah. I'm kind of the same, I'm like very intellectually curious. And so that can be a curse also because then you're interested in a lot of things, but you have to choose. And I think, yeah, following the things that you're most passionate about is actually a good compass because otherwise you can spend months and years in, yes. in things that actually at some point you're like, yeah, I'm liking the fire. Yes, that's correct. And it's actually very dangerous. Like you could... You know, if you are curious about many things, you could spend years pursuing avenues that in the end turn out as dead ends. Yes, I agree. It's very dangerous, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that reminds me of something I saw. I don't remember where, but I'm pretty sure it was a quote attributed to Warren Buffett or Albert Einstein, you know, any wise quote. Yeah, one of those, yeah. Exactly. But actually, I think the content was interesting. It's like, I write down the 25 things, the 25 most important things you want to do in your life before you die and by decreasing order and then pick the first five and focus on that. But most importantly, the other 20 ones also take them and really throw them away and avoid them like plague because that's what you don't want to spend your time on because you're going to be interested in them, but that's not exactly what you want to do. And so you can lose a lot of time on those. That sounds sounds more like Warren Buffett than Einstein. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but probably uh, Charles Munger, right? Like the brain behind Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie Munger, something like that. Yeah, actually, let's... Um, can you tell people what you're doing nowadays? Yes. Because that's what we're going to dive into in a few minutes. But basically, what's your work? And what are the topics you're particularly interested in? I would say the work I'm doing right now, all of it, broadly falls into the category of cognitive diversity. In other words, recognizing that minds are very complex, that minds are very different from each other in many ways, yes. And so if that is true, and I do believe that's true, that minds are very different and they're very complex, then you will need a lot of data to fully map out the space of possible minds, yes? So that's what we do in our lab. We do uh, investigations of cognition. So broadly conceived, you know, can be perception, can be attention, things like that. But highlighting the complexity, highlighting the diversity of different minds at, and to really bring that out, you have to have a lot of data. So that's what we do. Broadly conceived. How we go of a team are you um, working on that? That's a good question. It's always a little bit in flux, but I think in my lab right now are about 10 people. So, you know, we work in small teams. So, some, you know, different people working different things. So, 10 people about, yeah. So, you seem to know already about Bayesian inference. So, I'm curious. It's something I, I ask every guest. Do you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods and how frequently do you use them today? Oh, it's a very uh, good question. First of all, I yes, I remember vividly when I was first introduced to Bayesian methods. Now, this was a very long time ago. It was in fall 
probably October of 1998. Were you even alive back then? Were you alive yet? I was. I was eight years old and oh wow, probably celebrating the first World Cup of the French football team without knowing what's happening. Yes, that's correct. That summer '98 was the was the World Cup in France. Yes, and that's I remember that. Yeah. Anyway, so I was uh, that was my first semester in college, and if you can believe it, in the first semester, in the very first lecture, a professor Gerd Gigerenzer became a professor that day. So he was the head of the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, but That's you're not necessarily a professor. He was being appointed a professor at the Free University of Berlin, where I was a student, right? And so he gave his like inaugural lecture, and in this inaugural lecture, of all things, he talked about Bayesian method. He talked about, I'm sure you know about this, like you know the, the AIDS detection, like if you know what if you know one in a thousand people has AIDS and your test is 99% positive or something like that, what's the probability that you have? AIDS if you test is positive. And the answer is, of course, surprisingly, it's actually very low. The probability is very low, like one in a hundred or something like that. And that was mind-blowing because that, as you said, I was a very curious student in high school, studied many things, but that never came up. That, so I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I think I was actually thinking right then and there. That's when I decided to, you know, study this more deeply. So ironically, yes, the most important thing Maybe not ironically, but it makes sense, right? That the, one of the most important things would come up in the very first lecture. Yeah. So I was fortunate. Yes, Gerd Gigerenzer. He's still, I think he might be retired now, but he was the uh, head of the Max Planck Institute in Berlin at the time. He gave a very engaging lecture on like basically judgment and decision making. Like if your test is positive, what does that mean? And he had done research showing that doctors how do I say this, ignore the Bayesian prior, more or less. They go with the, um, let's see, they go with the likelihood. They don't go with the posterior or they don't take the prior into account to get to get at the posterior. They just confuse the posterior with the likelihood. Yeah. And that, he had done a lot of research on that. And so, again, that was just mind-blowing. And I was like, why don't we teach this in high school, you know? But we don't. Do you teach that in Argentina in high school? I'm French, so I don't know. Or in France? But in France, no, the Bayes theorem, no, it was after high school. By the way, of course, should be called Laplace's theorem, right? So even though it should be called that, the French don't teach that in high school? No? <laughs> no, no, unfortunately not. I think we have a bit of probability, probability at the very end of high school. Yes. I'm not sure we see already the Bayesian, the Bayes formula. But we do see probabilities for sure, conditional probabilities. Yeah, same thing in Germany, by the way. In high school in Germany, at the very end, last semester or so, we get a little bit of probability, maybe even conditional probability. And as you just said, it's then only one step from conditional probability to Bayesian probability, but they don't make that step. So I was very excited to enter college because I was encountered that in my first lecture. And I think the second part of your question was, how often do I use them? And well, it depends what you ask me for using them, but uh, I use it a lot in teaching. I mean, this comes up every semester, at least once, actually multiple times, at least once, right? And also in my work, as you know. So I would say quite a bit. And when you mean in your work, uh, that means like your using Bayesian models or... Bayesian modeling, because as we will talk in a moment, as you just said, like we want to go deeper into what was touched on in that podcast by David McRaney. Yes, I mean, these perceptual things are, in my opinion, probably best modeled in a Bayesian framework, yes. And we'll dive into that right now. Just want to make the comment that, yeah, I completely share your enthusiasm with that test, medical test example. Me, even though it's like, and to me, it was one of the first times I really understood like the power of the Bayesian method, because of course I made the mistake. It's like those visual illusions where it's like part, like your first response from the brain is going to be, oh yeah, it's 99% because the test is super accurate. So you just take the likelihood. That's what a doctor will tell you, by the way. So I have, I can tell you this from, from personal experience. Like if you go to your doctor, that's what they will tell you. So Gigerens is right. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember those studies, then I dug into that and I was like, oh, actually like they did studies, it was like really well-known doctors and like guys who are smart and they made the mistake. They don't know. And so I was like, wait, but why do we do that? And so then, yeah, I just dug into the, the Bayesian framework. It's true. And I actually use that in my, in my own teaching. Like uh, I tell the students, you know, you cannot rely on the experts knowing. The doctors are experts on the medicine. They're not experts on the statistics or Bayesian methods. They, they don't know. You have to know yourself. Okay, let's, um, because I'm going to have enough time. And so let's, dive into the, the meat of the episode. And so, yeah, basically, as I said, I've discovered your work through the, 
the You Are Not So Smart podcast, listeners should go to the show notes. I have a link there to that episode in particular, and I don't want to remake that episode because that'd be boring for you and for me too. <laughs> so yes, in there, you talk about your research that you did on the dress yes. from 2016, you know, the one that people saw mainly either in black and blue, which is the real color of the real dress, or uh, lots of people also saw it in white and gold. And so you, that whole episode is about that dress, what the work you did to understand what was at the root of those problems. Uh, I mean, not that of that illusion, like you'll tell us actually how we should call that and then how you did to reproduce that. So here, can you just remind listeners basically what these dress was about and the problem that it was raising? Well, so very briefly, as you just said, in February 2015, picture of a dress that was taken in a shop in England went viral. And the reason it went viral is because even though, as you just said, the dress itself is black and blue, and if it's in bright light, bright white light, bright normal light, regular light, everybody agrees that, yes, the dress is black and blue. But that particular image, the internet was pretty much split down the middle, although there was a slight bias towards white and gold. So most people actually saw it was gold, it's like two-thirds or something like that. I would say 60% saw it as white and gold, a third as black and blue, and then the rest, everything else. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so, and, and, and so that's what really, I think that's what was one of the most still to this day, the, one of the most like, you know, groundbreaking things that just everybody was talking about. Yeah. And so, so that's how I remember it too. And uh, so briefly, there was this fundamental disagreement between what the color of the picture of that dress is. And I guess what makes this remarkable is it's not subtle. Okay. It's, it's white and gold or black and blue. Those things are not next to each other on the color color wheel. And I think that's what that's what was so striking. And by the way, early on, just briefly, early on, people dismissed this. They said, well, it's different people have different phone settings, like color settings on their phone and stuff like that. But no, you can look on the same screen and different people will still disagree. So that explanation could be dismissed very easily. And I did, of course, that experiment before the show. I mean, not scientific, but I have that picture now on my phone. Right. Because after listening to your episode with David, I was like, okay, this is super interesting. I'm going to be a nerd and talk about that to everybody I encounter in Argentina. <laughs> and so, and then I was like, oh, I'm going to interview that guy, by the way. So he's doing that. Blah, blah, blah. And then the, the, I was showing that picture. I was like, so how do you see it right now? And of course, it was not the same as me most of the time. It was just like amazing. Yeah, so yeah. Early on on the first day, there was articles, even like Scientific American, I can send them to you afterwards that said, oh, it's just screen settings. But I knew that was not true because I had done what you did. Like look at the same screen, Different people, yes. Yeah. And I want to make clear also that this is like a real picture that completely randomly appeared. Like it's not an experiment that was planted and afterwards we discovered it was one, right? It was like just someone taking a picture. It came out of nowhere, yes. Uh, it was not by scientists. It was, I mean, literally the people themselves who took the picture also didn't expect that. It's just that they had gone, they were buying dresses for a wedding and they couldn't agree what to buy. So they, they, they took pictures of the dresses. And then later they were looking at them and they just couldn't agree <laughs> uh, what the color was. And then they were like, what's going on here? Like maybe you need to see the eye doctor. So someone else, I think someone from the band posted that online and then just took off. Yeah, yeah. And I remember that, and there are some clips like that in the episode with David where it's like, it's funny because at some point once it became like, it blew up, it almost became a polarizing issue where it was like, black and blue versus white and gold. And I remember people who were like seeing it in black and blue, but because I don't know, Beyonce or someone else was saying, oh no, I see it white and gold. Then we're like, wait, but I was, I want to see it in white and gold too. Like I, I want to be like Beyonce, you know, stuff like that. It's just... Exactly. Like, so basically, I mean, initially I thought people are just trolling me, you know, but <laughs> it took uh, for me to meet somebody who I trust completely not to troll me that started to take it seriously. Yes. Let's take it seriously and... So let me play the complete beginner, which is not that hard because it's a very new view for me. Okay. But basically, isn't that something we already know? Because to me, illusions, visual illusions are common knowledge, right? If I just go to any science museum, I can be blown away by amazing illusions where my brain sees something, my eyes see something, but actually my brain interprets it in another way. So what makes that dress particular if 
anything makes it particle. Oh yes, it does. So let me tell you why the dress is special, and I'll tell you, give you at least three reasons why the dress is special to me. I mean, not just to me, but to vision scientists, <laughs> I guess. The first one is uh, prior to that day, so prior to February 2015, most vision scientists would probably agree with the fact that color is very simple or color perception is very simple. And the, and the idea is if I measure your human response transfer function to three basic lights, yes, I can predict your response to any light. This is quite the statement, but there's a field in vision science called psychophysics where you can show that. If you, if I measure what's called your transfer function or your response function to three elementary lights, I can predict your response to any light. It's quite amazing. It's quite the achievement of vision scientists to, to be able to do that, yes? I mean, that's what science is, right? I can basically break down the complexities of color vision into... It's element forms, there's three building blocks. building blocks. And then if I understand those, I can basically predict your response to any light, any mixture of light. That's quite amazing, right? It's essentially, by the, by the way, the essence of like uh, TVs or screens that from the elements in your LCD screen, if you watch this on an LCD screen or your computer or whatever, you can constitute any light mixture that you want. It's amazing, right? That you can do that. Well, what the dress shows is that's just not true. There's more to color perception than this simple light mixture, yes? So basically, the, the brain takes other things into account. That's number one. The second thing is, uh, you're absolutely right, and I'm not sure, I apologize, I haven't listened to your podcast as much as I should, so I don't know, I don't know what else you have covered, but, so for instance, in vision, it's been very well known for many years that Bayesian priors play a role in motion perception, yes? So let me give you an example. Like, let's say you see something moving and I ask you how fast it is and you give me your estimate. If I then show you the same image or the same moving stimulus at a lower contrast, yes, you will then perceive it as slower. Why? Because your likelihood is estimate is more noisy. So your brain will put more emphasis on the prior. And the prior is for slower speeds because most things are not moving at all. There's more slow-moving things in the environment, right? So basically... You and when you say more contrast, less contrast, that means, for instance, less light? Uh, practically, yes. But contrast is basically the difference between the, the brightest point and the darkest point. But if you dial the contrast down, you can show that the brain will put more emphasis on the prior, and then you will see things slower. But to mind... Because you get less information from the data. Correct. So you have to rely more on the prior. And the brain is smart like that. Yeah. And you can show the same thing. Same thing is true for uh, the motor system. So they showed basically the analogy is tennis players, right? If you see the ball, you go to where the ball is. But if I add fog, and by the way, I'm happy to send you those papers. I'm not sure if you covered them on your podcast yet. Yeah, no, for sure. We should put that in the show notes. Yeah, in the show notes. Yes. If you add fog, basically, then the tennis player will go to prior, like where the ball tends to go. It's been shown in the motor system and it's been shown in the motion system, but to my knowledge, nobody had ever shown that in the color system. And so that would be, for instance, why it's harder for us to drive at night, I guess. Dangerous. Because, because you will see things moving slower than they actually are. Yes, correct. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. I'm actually super amazed still that we can estimate quite accurately the speed of a car moving really fast down the road and if we can cross or not. Because I mean, if you think from an evolutionary perspective, our system is not at all made for that. Like cars are really, really recent. So it's pretty amazing that we have that plasticity to be able to do that already. And I'll be happy to send you some show notes on that or that some things that you can put in the show notes. Yes. Yeah. Now, anyway, the third thing is, the third reason why it's amazing is, you know, those illusions in the uh, museum that you said, like for instance, the Necker cube that you see the cube going this way or that way, or the, or the vase and the faces, yes? Yeah. But most people can see both things very quickly, yes? Or the spinning dancer, spins clockwise and then counterclockwise, all of that, yes? Yeah. With the dress, because it has to do with what prior you have and with, with, with what prior I have, it's not something I can easily override. So you might never be able to see. By the way, what do you see? Black and blue or white and gold? So this is super weird because depending on the moment of the day I look at the picture, I see it differently. Okay, so 1% of the people, right? In my data set, I have now almost 50,000 people who did this in my data set. Remember I said I do this at big scale, yes? About 1% of people are like you. Their priors are so close that whatever the mood of the day is or the lighting of the day is, they, they switch. But most people are not like that. I want to make clear, I cannot switch on demand. It just is super weird. Like, And I actually had the page on Wikipedia on my phone opened for a while. And then I was like, wait, it was any changed color. 
I was like, wait, that's super weird. <laughs> maybe the image is dynamic on Wikipedia. I was like, I don't know. Maybe it's not exactly the same image. So I downloaded the image on my phone to be sure that it was the same. And then it was still, it was still like from time to time, black and blue, and then white and gold. And I was like, what's going on? It's funny to mention that because there was a lot of conspiracy theories about that early on that these news sites had switched the image. Yeah. Yes. And the fourth thing that makes it, so those are the three things so far. The third one being that you can't switch. Whereas in most of these illusions in the Vindy Museum, you can switch. Yes. And the fourth thing is that it's so strikingly different. So, for instance, every so often, like a new dress, quote unquote, breaks. Yes. But it's like, okay, is this blue or is it gray or something like that? You know what I'm saying? Where it's like really a judgment call. Like, yeah, I don't know. But this is like black and blue or white and gold. Like, whoa, you know, it's like, this is not at all close. Yeah, yeah. If you look on the color wheel, it's not. Complete opposites. Yeah, it's like, I see a banana and you see spinach. It's like, What? It's that different, yes. So I would say those are the four things that does make the dress special. Yes, it does. Okay, great. Awesome. Thanks a lot for that very structured answer to a very broad question. Okay, so I'm very impatient, so I cannot take that suspense anymore. Okay. <laughs> so tell us why some of us see that dress as it is, so black and blue, and some of us see it as white and gold. And then you said, like in the experiment you did, 1% of the people could see both. Right, right, right. Yeah. And again, so tell us that. But again, listeners want to dive deeper. They should listen to that You Are Not So Smart episode for the details of exactly how you discovered this and how you reproduced it afterwards with beautiful combination of socks and crocs. I see. Well, there's a lot here. So I'm, I'm going to make it as Bayesian as I can because this is a Bayesian podcast. Yes. So let me contrast this with the, with the emotion stuff or make, explain this in the context of the emotion stuff. So basically in the emotion case, yes. Everybody has the same prior because everybody has the same experience because in the real world, slow things or even not moving things are just much more common than fast moving things, yes? Which, by the way, I promise you, I would send you this paper and I will, but basically that's actually one, one hint that people can see fast moving stuff because it's so unusual. The likelihood is very strong. But anyway, my point is that, so in motion, in the motion domain, everybody has the same experience. Let's talk about the dress. So the picture of the dress, in the picture of the dress, the illumination is not defined. Basically, this was taken inside, yes, but that's unclear if it's artificial light or daylight because it was overexposed with a cell phone, with a Samsung cell phone, with a flash. So let me ask you, as the Bayesian, what does the brain do if the likelihood is unclear? If there's missing, missing information, does the brain say, I don't know? Does the brain say that? Yeah. If the likelihood is unknown, if, if there's missing information, what does the Bayesian brain do? So I'm not a specialist of the brain, but I can tell you what the model would do. What would the model do? If the data is not informative enough, then you yes. rely on the priors. Wonderful, wonderful. So in other words, I cannot... So normally to see a color, the lighting has to be taken into account. That's called color constancy, yes? I'm not sure if you have a photographer or if your audience is photographers, but basically you have to color correct the image, right? So to make sure that you know, your shirt looks the same way outside in artificial light and in daylight, you have to take the illumination into account. Yes. But if you don't know the illumination because it's ill-defined, what are you going to do? So here's the cool thing. Some people have more experience with artificial light and some people have more experience with natural light. Everything else being equal. Of course, everything else will not be equal, which is why we need large groups. But the idea is that, would you agree with me that if someone gets up at the break of dawn, with the, when the sun goes up, that everything else being equal, they will be more exposed to daylight, sunlight, than somebody who gets up late and stays up late, who will then be more exposed to artificial light. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I would agree with that. Like, especially me, who is, I'm not a, an early bird. Like, I would have difficulties telling you what color consistency is of the dawn, of the very beginning of the days. Like, and I can be very more detailed about the sunset light which I love and watch a lot. So to make a long story short, people who are morning people and are exposed to more daylight in our Bayesian account would predict that they have a daylight prior, that their prior of illumination is a daylight prior. And they will then mentally subtract that. I want to be clear, not explicitly, not like deliberately, but unconsciously, their perceptions will assume the illumination is daylight and they will subtract that. Now, and daylight is bluish, okay? Uh, if you look at the sky, the sky is blue, right? So if you subtract bluish light, a more yellowish image will remain. Yes, if you subtract from gray. And that's exactly what those people see. And if you have people who get up as you, they are like a night owl, 
they are more exposed to incandescent light. And I'm happy to show this to you in the show notes. Incandescent light is more warm, has more long wavelengths. And if you subtract these long wavelengths from gray, then you will get a shorter wavelength image, which is bluish. And that's exactly what you'll see. And we did in our study close the loop. So basically people who are morning people see it as white and gold. People who are night night people see it as black and blue. And people who are morning people are more likely to assume it was daylight. And people who are uh, night people are more likely to see it as artificial light. So it's closed loop. And finally, one more thing. Obviously, let's say you are a night person, but you have neon lights as opposed to incandescent light. Then this wouldn't work. Or let's say you are a night person, but you are forced to get up in the morning because of your job. I don't know what your job is, but let's say you do. Then this wouldn't work. So this is not necessarily going to happen on the individual level, but in large groups, we find a very large, statistically reliable result. And I have now replicated this in like 50,000 people. But you did raise an important point, which is, so what? You know, maybe the dress is just a fluke. Who knows what's going on with the dress, right? As you just said, if you truly understand something scientifically, you should be able to reproduce it, Yes. So we did. Oh, maybe before you go into that, because I think it will be relevant. Go ahead. Just a very short question. Why did you start from gray to subtract? Because you said we have gray, we subtract blue, and we have gray, we subtract red. Good point. Gray is just the perceptual neutral point. So basically, if the illumination is ill-defined, that's basically means perceptually gray, if that makes sense. That's having basically no data. Okay. No data is gray, yes. Okay. It's not black. It's important. It's gray. Okay, anyway, so to close the loop, I did address stuff by myself and I started to think about the principles, yes. And then together with my colleague, Michael Karlovich, we implemented this with Crocs and socks, as she said. So we took Crocs, which is a kind of shoe, <laughs> which could be any color, and we illuminated them with complementary light. So either, so let's say if it's a green Croc, we illuminate with pink light on a black background. So it would look gray. Or we took a pink croc and illuminated with green light, so it would look gray. But then the person, our model, Michael Karlovich, wore socks that are white. And those white socks would then, if the light was green, would then look green. Or if the light was pink, they would look pink. And now comes the big, uh, what shall I call it, reveal. And that is, if you go with first impressions, like the, what it looks like, then the Crocs will look gray and the socks will look either uh, pink or green. And maybe, you know, there are green green socks, there's pink socks, right? And there's gray Crocs, it's possible. But there's some people, and we were able to show that in, the, in our paper, that know this kind of sock is white. And those people will then be able to recover the original color of the croc even because they're mentally subtracting the light even if it's not there it's pretty crazy actually yeah the pixels are gray but the appearance and the mind of the people who know this is white is going to be pink or green and that's when we knew we basically could show that that's the mechanism we can create it yeah that's amazing i loved it when you went to the, the detail in, in david's podcast this is I was like, ah, okay, that's fun. And also, like, that's where you see, for me, that was my first real exposure to, let's say, color science. Because me, what I know about wavelengths from color and so on come from physics and astrophysics. And I know, like, we, we use the wavelengths, stuff like that, like, you know, things that are, like, objects that are further from us. Redshift and all that. Yeah, exactly, with the redshift and so on. I know it's very important for that, but uh, it was funny for me to see it also, Basically, here on Earth, we can use that. That was super cool. And just to mention the Bayesian aspect of that Crocs and sock thing. So basically, some people have a white sock prior. I know that sounds a little crazy, but where does it come from? We asked in our study. And it's basically people who have more experience with that kind of sock have a more likelihood, stronger likelihood to have that kind of prior. Yeah. Again, this sounds pretty wild, but we have the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it does, to me, it does make sense, but it's because maybe it's because I'm Bayesian. Yes, yes. But... And so basically, all of this, what's really super important here is people's priors, right? Yes. Basically, it's these kind of experiments are a way to reveal people's priors about the, the phenomenon in question, right? Correct. I think it's like kind of the first time I listened to that in the way that, because prior elicitation is re- very hard, like notoriously very. hard in the Bayesian framework. Because there is still that, you know, illusion that we don't have priors. Like, you know, like people are like, but I don't have any priors in that. And then what I say is now I don't say, of course, you have prior, you stupid. I'm like, okay, let's say you don't have priors. And then I just ask questions, you know, but like, let's say that, I don't know where, if you try to have a model about 
trying to uh, model the patterns of migration from birds and you're making a model of that, you need priors on, I don't know, the velocity of birds. And I, I don't know anything about that, but then I'll just ask the question. So do you think birds go as fast as light? No. Well, that's prior, right? And do you think birds go as slow as a, you know, a turtle? No. Like, so you, you have priors. It's just like they are so ingrained that you actually don't know you have them. And that's actually a really good point. So basically, if I asked you, you know, if you have a white sock prior, you would say, of course not. Or you have a daylight prior or something like that. And so this is actually a nice way to show, yeah, these priors are, do exist and they only manifest like for the effect on behavior or perception, you know. But you would never know. How would you know, you know, if you have this prior or not? Yeah, I'm reading that book right now from uh, Robert Burton, I think, on being certain. And it's a... Um, neuroscientist and it's super super interesting and that part there is a part of the book where he talks about priors and how they are basically ingrained and also it makes sense because otherwise if you had to you know know all your priors all the time it would basically make you very very inefficient as a human being exactly so as a cognitive scientist i can say that how do i say this prior biases priors bias you for action and and as you know with evolution being correct is a kind of secondary consideration but the first thing is you need to act you need to take action and to take action for going crazy or of being anxious, you have to be fairly certain. More certain than the data justifies. But if your prior is good, that's fine. If you have a good prior, you'll be fine. You don't need to wait until you have all the evidence. You're going to be too slow. Someone else is going to you know, take your food. Eat you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, eat you. You are the food. Yes, you are the food. Yeah, and most of the time, so those priors work really well. It's just sometimes you have, to, you have to think about them. And yeah, I mean, basically in that book also, he goes into like the, basically the spectrum of some people being totally unconvinced most of the time because they have yeah. obsessive, compulsive, obsessive disorder or something like that. Yeah, 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 yes, 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 exactly. So you could see that like that. And then you have the other end of the spectrum of people being totally convinced of something. And then he takes the example of John Nash, for instance, who was like very good, absolutely convinced against all evidence that he was going to be the next emperor of Antarctica. That's a very good point that you raised. You know how I told you earlier that I say like cognitive diversity in my lab? And that's exactly the kind of thing that we're looking at. So basically, there are people that look up in the sky and they don't see constellations. They just see individual stars. Yes. So they basically don't, they don't jump to conclusions. They don't connect the dots. Other people they see all kinds of things, you know, they just look up and they see whole stories play out and mythology and all that. So there's a huge difference in the propensity of to connect the dots, yes, and to jump to conclusions. And as you just said, some people are very willing to take priors to jump to conclusions and others are not. And and a society probably needs needs a good mix of both, you know, some people who are very cautious and some people who are very willing to take risks and then will sort itself out, yes. Exactly. And indeed, he goes into that, those topics in, in the book and that's, it's fascinating for that because it's also also the difference between knowing and the feeling of knowing and how actually the feeling of knowing in a lot of circumstances takes precedence. And so you can feel like you know something when actually you don't or it's absolutely fascinating. Wonderful. Yeah. So basically that means that all this thing is really related to priors, which I found amazing. And yes, yeah, I mean, as a Bayesian modeler and also like a teacher, uh, for me, it's really useful to have those, you know, concrete examples because that helps me teach basically about the, oh yes, not only the importance of priors, but also the fact that it's just like, they are there. <laughs> so just like, you know, try and elicit them. And then the problem is how do you elicit priors from people consistently and without biasing too much that elicitation of priors? Because ideally you want people to really tell them their priors and not priors that they think are acceptable or something like that. And so that's really something important and hard to do still. You might want to look into the slow motion prior. I'm going to send you a paper. That's very consistent. It's a very strong effect and it's a very consistent effect. Everybody has that, as far as I can tell, because slowly moving things are just much, so much more common than fast moving things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So yeah, definitely that, that's super cool. And to me, does that mean that brain is essentially a Bayesian machinery. I'm going to say, I don't know. And let me tell you why I'm hedging. <laughs> I have a nuanced answer to that. And let me tell you why. The perceptual system, absolutely, yes. I mean, it does work like that. The motor system, yes. And I will send you the papers for your show notes. But, and I'm also going to send you those papers, all you probably already know about them. But 
You, we just talked about this. And yet, doctors ignored it prior. You know what I'm saying? In the decision-making. And yet, people ignored it prior. Do you, you know about the farmer? This is a classic example. Uh, Bob reads a lot of books and he has glasses. What's more likely, that he's a farmer or that he's a librarian? Yeah. And most people say, well, obviously a librarian. But that's not true. He's more likely to be a farmer because there's 20 or 30 times more farmers than there's librarians. Because people ignore the prior. So what's going on? Part of the brain is definitely Bayesian, like perceptual system, motor system. But another part, the reasoning part, I guess, every time you show that, and as you know, you can get a Nobel Prize for showing this, Kahneman and Tversky, right? Not so much. And Gergerens of all these studies and doctors, no, they don't take. So which one is it? And I'm not sure. It's the difference conscious versus unconscious, if that makes sense. So in other words, the, the conscious brain is not Bayesian, but the unconscious one is, maybe. Maybe that's what the unconscious mind is, priors. You know how Freud said he knows what what's in the unconscious, it's sex. Maybe we know what's in the unconscious, it's just priors. <laughs> Maybe. That does make more sense to me. Me too. You know, Freud, some people say fraud. But anyway, well, let's not go into that. But the point is that that's how he sold it, though. He was like, I know what's in your unconscious, it's just sex, sexual urges. That's what that's what sold. That's what that's why you become popular. But I think I agree with you. I think it's probably priors. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love that. Anyway, so that's my position on that. I still haven't done the key experiment, right? So can you turn uh, some reasoning more or less Bayesian, depending on how much more conscious you make it? But that should that would be my prediction. Yeah, that's definitely the thing I would like to do afterwards. It's like, can you control that slider? Yes, basically, like because I'm I'm guessing that there are situations where it, it's evolutionary more interesting to be a Bayesian, and then not. You know, it depends on the situations. And so I'm guessing that the brain tries to do that slider, but we don't know how it does that. And so the question would be, how do you do? That is my prediction, that the brain will be adaptive. In other words, that when it benefits it, it will use the prior, otherwise it won't. And that's actually, by the way, also what I tell my students, like that Bayesian reasoning is great if you have a great prior. If you have a bad prior, then you're in trouble because I will not be able to change your mind. I mean, let's say you believe some crazy stuff for whatever reason, right? And you are 100% sure, 100% sure. What am I going to tell you? As you know, if your probability of your prior is one, it doesn't matter what the evidence is. I can never update that. Mathematically impossible, right? So the brain might want to be more adaptive about that. Well, sometimes I'm not going to be Bayesian at all. And maybe that's what consciousness is. Remember? The idea from a neuroscience perspective that consciousness is like this, this thing you need when you're in, in an unknown situation. So it actually, that would track is what I'm saying. We've got your prior when you basically go on autopilot. Yes, so basically. Have you ever driven home <laughs> not knowing even where you were going and what anything? And that's unconscious, right? And that's because you have a good prior how to do that. No, clearly, definitely. And I, the other day I noticed something really that made me laugh. I always take the stairs to go up and down my flat and I live on the fifth floor. So the other day, I was just like in my thoughts going up and then I stop, I open the door from the stairs to go to my flat and then in front of my door, I'm like, that's not my flat. But just, you know, it was super fast. I'm like, I'm sure I'm not at the right floor and I was at the fourth floor and not the fifth one. And and then after once I was like, that's weird because how did I know it? it was not my flat? You know, because I didn't see the door of the floor and then... It hit me, it was like, oh yeah, there were no, uh, how do you say, a rug. There were no rug in front of the door. And it was completely unconscious, but then I was like... Unconsciously realized that, exactly. Exactly, yeah. There you go. So that's right my prediction from that, that the more conscious you make the processing, the less it's going to rely on priors. That would make sense, because that means that you cannot take the decision automatically. And so that... Correct. Probably it's correlated with the fact that you have bad priors or... Uh, yes. Priors that are to diffuse and then the system is like, okay, we need input here because we don't know what to do. Exactly. And so actually you talked a bit about that already. You said like in 1% of your data set, people could see the two different combinations of the dress. Yes. I'm guessing you tried to replicate that also with the Crocs. Oh, yes. So can you tell, like, is it technically possible to be able, so it's technically possible to see both combinations as I do, for instance, depending on the moment of the day, so you said it's because the priors for both cases are too close, basically. And also, so maybe if you have interested to dive on that. And also I have a related question, which is, is it technically possible to see the dress or the Crocs and socks in totally different combinations of colors? So like the dress, for instance, we suppose that it's going to be blue and black or white and gold. But can someone come back and be like, I see it green and pink. 
Is that possible, technically? So there's a lot here. So briefly, not green and pink, but what is relatively common is that someone is like, say, an artist, and they say, I see it as blue and gold. So they basically combine the two. And actually, if you look at the actual pixels on Photoshop with the, with the color dropper, they are actually right. The pixels are blue and gold. So there are some people who are able to ignore their prior because they're just good of colors because of their background of like, they can see through it. You know what I'm saying? They're like, their job is, they're so good of colors because that's what they do all day. And their job as an artist or as a photographer, photographers too, actually, that they can just tell and they will tell you it's actually blue and gold and they're right. And frankly, that's what I see now because I've worked on this so much that I now see it blue and gold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, didn't you see that? Didn't you see that the dress is actually Black and blue? No, but the image is blue and gold. How is that possible? And that's what people who are very familiar with that, photographers, artists, they see that. But there was another question that you had, and that was about, ah, yes. So some people see it like about 1% if they switch, yes. And so here's the experiment I want to do. I haven't done this yet for purely logistical reasons, but I have the contact information of several hundred of these people. And what I want to do... Well, you have me now. And now you, there's a couple hundred plus one. And <laughs> what I want to do, but again, this is for, for purely logistical reasons, I've not done this yet. I want to send them a incandescent light bulb versus a light bulb that is very like, you know, on the other end of the spectrum. And I'll be like, okay, you use this light bulb for a couple months and then we'll see if we can lock you into this or that pool. Because one thing that's not clear yet is one possibility is that the priors are just very close and we can bias you towards one or the other, yes? That's our hypothesis. But another possibility is there are some people that just don't rely on priors that much at all. And then it has nothing to do with that. So, and we don't know which one it is yet. But that's one of my long lists of experiments that I want to do. It's just I haven't done it yet. But yeah, that would be tease apart that question. Is it that some people just have priors that are too close? Or is it that they don't rely on priors at all that much? Yeah, or maybe even something else. I was going to say, or maybe even something else. I was just going to say that, yes. Or a little bit of both. But if our story is true, and I think it is true, then it should be possible to bias those experimentally, push them in this or that pool. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Can't wait for that experiment. As we said, basically that experiment you did with the Crocs and Socks, basically that shows that we can elicit people's priors. We can identify their priors, even if they don't even know that they have those priors, which to me is amazing. Yes, and I think they, they would be very, they're very surprised. Yeah, that's incredible. I love that. Yeah, no, it's a wild, wild story. I think people would be very surprised if we told them, yo, you have a wide sock prior. <laughs> this is another experiment I want to do, but I haven't found an object yet. And maybe your listeners can help me. Here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for an object, a candle, some object that is one color in one culture, but another color in the culture right next to it. So maybe Brazil versus Argentina or something like that, or France versus Germany. Like the same object looks different in different cultures. I'm so do you mean when I think, when you tell me that object, then my brain is picturing something? Or when you show me that object, my brain is seeing something? No, just, just the experience. Like let's say, I don't know, let's say mail trucks are red in France and blue in England. I, I don't think they are, but let's just say that's the case. Yeah. And then I show you one that's kind of ambiguous with lighting conditions, then I can maybe elicit that prior for people from that or that culture. I think so. But again, I haven't found a suitable object yet. Yeah, that makes sense. If I'm right, that should work. And then we can basically visualize that prior. Yeah. Or elicit that prior. The, I don't know, you tell me, is there like a prior for, let's say soccer balls are yellow in Brazil and white in Argentina, but I'm not sure if that's true. Then we could, we could use that. Yeah, yeah, I see. I see what you mean. Okay, nice. Well, definitely, people. You heard Pascal. So if you have any ideas, let us know and we'll get that going. Same object, but different colors and different cultures. That could be very valuable. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I like how is that it's a very important part of your experiments. You talk about that actually in David McCraney's podcast episode where actually finding oh, yes. the combination of Crocs and socks was very long. Like It took you a lot of work. Uh, to find that object. That was the contribution of my collaborator, Michael Karlovich. Uh, he had experience with Crocs and Socks. He had experience with Crocs and Socks. I wanted to use like candles of different colors and maybe that were, would have worked too, but we settled on the Crocs and Socks. Yeah, that's like, it's the kind of things that, I mean, when I do a model, it's like a lot of things, you know, happen under the hood and people don't see them, but they actually take you a lot of time. 
that made me think about that. It's like, it's just like the hidden work it was a lot of that. Well, the idea of the experiment is one thing, right? But impl implementing and making it work is not easy. To get back to those prior elicitations, so that's what it shows, that you can, people have priors, people have priors, even though they don't know they have some. Yes. Does that mean that basically we can change people's priors? And maybe that could bring us closer on some important issues, right? Because like here, it's just about to dress and some Crocs. But of course, those priors can come up all the time. And so, yeah, my next question is, okay, we know people have priors. Does that mean we can change those priors? Well, how do I say? If I'm right, I'm not sure if I'm right, but if I'm right, then priors are set by experience, yes? And so that would imply that by repeated exposure, you can change those priors. However, I am concerned about that. In other words, you said that it could unite the people. <laughs> I'm very concerned that it's used right now actually to divide the people. Yeah. The idea being that if you consume a certain kind of news outlet, yes, and someone else consumes another kind of outlet, you might stop agreeing about what even constitutes reality, yes. And as far as I can tell, this is used by people who control these media outlets right now to actually control and divide the people or divide the people to control the people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was going to be my next question, which was actually worrying me when I was writing the questions. It's very worrying. Yes. Yeah. Which is like, then can you change people's priors without them knowing? Because if they don't know they have priors, then probably you can change them without them even realizing that. There's no doubt in my mind that media companies, social media companies are doing this right now. Now, are they doing that with that in mind? I don't know. But that's what's effectively happening. That say you're on Twitter, you're in a certain group of people who share similar... You might think everybody's a Bayesian because in your network, everybody is. Yes. In my network, maybe I think everybody's a vision scientist. And so the idea is that historic... Here's actually something that's very interesting and very scary, actually. Historically, right? You would live in a small village, in a small tribe, like I'm talking about 10,000 years ago, yes? And you would all be more or less exposed to the same experiences, yes? In the modern world, particularly online, that is not true at all. We all listen to different shows, listen to different music, watch different shows, read different newspapers. I'm very worried about that because it's now possible in the 21st century to take control of somebody's mind, if I'm right, without them even knowing it. But how would you do that? Like, can you... Walk us through an example. Oh, yeah. Let's say you own the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and MSNBC, and you just expose people to fake news all day long. And then they will start to believe that the world is not as it is. They will have all kinds of imaginary concerns. But how does that relate to the... Oh, yeah, that relates to the priors because it changes your experiment of something. Like if you keep seeing, for instance, the news that, I know, there are terrorist attacks all the time, then your brain is like, wait, there are way more terrorist attacks than I thought. We definitely need to do something about that. Correct. And so, and there's lots of research on this already, actually, not with the Bayesian framework, but the idea is that people think something is an issue if the news mentions it more. Yes. If, whether it's an issue or not, actually. And of course, the news has their own incentives, like they're being paid by clicks and, you know, things like that. So they might have a vested interest to get create outrage when there's no reason for it because outrage sells clicks sell you know for sure yeah that's another part of the brain that loves that right actually i'd like because time is flying by but i'd like to ask you a bit about the modeling part okay because you said actually you're using bayesian models to model the brain which is itself Bayesian in some ways. This part of it, rather, this part of it, but yes. Yeah. Maybe take an example. How does that work? Like those models are really Bayesian models. Yes, yes, yes. So from a Bayesian perspective, yes, the innovation is, and again, I will send you the evolution of this in a, in the show, for the show notes, yes. But basically, I don't know. I'm trying to retrace our steps like in the history of like cognitive science, yes. But basically by the early 2000s, it was clear that people use priors in perception. And I already gave you several examples and there was highly well published and made a lot of impact and all of that. The next step, and that's where we come in, is that different people have different priors. So basically in a population modeling, you now have two priors, two different priors. So one part of population has a long wavelength prior of the light and one has a short wavelength prior of the light. And you have a competitive model to predict who sees what. So that's the innovation. So we go from a 
model of one prior to a model of like two priors and they're competing with each other. So that's the from Bayesian modeling perspective, the innovation and applying that to cognitive responses or perception. I see. Okay. So I guess the structure of your models is a Bayesian structure. So you have your data that comes and then the whole structure is your model with priors on your parameters. And then how do you run those models? What do you use? Oh, you, we, we, that's a good question. So we, we constrain it, which is, that's why I said, and I don't know, you know what your background is, but you said something about astronomy? I didn't study that, but I'm fascinated by it. So Okay, okay. But anyway, so the point is, in one word, big data. Like we use lots of data to fine-tune the parameters and update the parameters of those models. Okay. To then, you know, have a likelihood function. And, you know you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yes. But which I'm curious about the software. Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> Are you using some open source tools? Like, how does that work in your world? No, no, no. We use MATLAB and Python. We just write it ourselves. Ah, okay. I see. Well, if you're using Python, you should give a try to PyMC. Oh, look, I'm sure that's true. It's just that... <laughs> yes, you're right. We should. But it's just that we... Because we're writing the samplers for you. It's going to save you time. I see. Yeah, that's definitely true. It's just that it's also not a big deal, right? I mean, I mean, but you're right. We should not reinvent the wheel. Yes. I guess, yeah, because like basically your specialty is in the model and like basically having the, the nerdy people doing the algorithms and so on. And then you can just rely on that is something that I found super valuable because myself first, because myself, I'm not, I'm not the mathematician. So actually having those frameworks empowers me because I don't have to do hard math to do my models. I can do code and then I execute the code and the code is doing the math for me. I see. That's fair too. That's fair too. That's also fine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you do that one day, definitely uh, let me know. And if you need, if you have some questions about PMC, of course, I'll be happy to help. Okay. Thank you for offering. So maybe more of a more philosophical question, let's say, to okay. start closing up the show. I'm curious to you, what does your research into these topics say about as humans and in particular, how about how we literally and figuratively see the world differently? Well, I think the reality is that, and I see this in my students, most people just assume that the way they see the world is the way other people see the world. And that's because in their mind, because that's how the world is, yes? The reality is, and this is a little scary, which I understand people don't want to hear that. The reality is that you're seeing the world through a particular lens, with a particular filter, from a particular perspective, and that might, and that's colored, literally colored by your experience. So that might not agree with somebody else's perception of the world, right? And I do think that we have to come to terms with, let's say I say something and you say, I disagree. My first instinct is to say, <laughs> well, you're wrong or you're crazy <laughs> or you're trolling me or whatever. Yes. Or you're but stupid. I think we need to, oh yes, yes, yes. All of that. <laughs> yes. So, but I think we need to start evolving or developing rather a culture where we say, okay, we disagree. So that's interesting, right? Why is that? Is it perhaps possible that we have different priors? And if that's true, where did these priors come from? Is there a way to reconcile this somehow, you know? And right now, I don't see that culture at all. I see conflict. I see disagreement. I see polarization. And I think a lot of that is very unfortunate, yes? And there is a lot of, I would say, needless conflict because, you know, I think that we are... Not aware. I mean, not all of us, but some most people are not aware. They have these priors and of the and the way they are impacting their perception, and so I think a lot of conflict could be avoided by just acknowledging that that the way you see something is not necessarily because that's how it is, but because of your prior, and someone else might have a different prior, and let's resolve that. Yeah, and that's why I love this idea of prior elicitation. Right. It's because like basically priors seem to mainly be unconscious. You got it. So we are not aware of them, at least consciously. And so like we think we're unbiased and we think we see the reality as it is. And then if you're able to elicit the priors and show people that they do have priors, even though they think they don't, well, that can change the game because that that makes you like anybody would be like in awe at that. You know, it's like, wait, what? Like, oh, I didn't even know I was thinking that. And so that's why it's so important what you do, because making people aware of this Bayesian framework in general, right? 
And then on the importance of priors in particular, I think that could be a game changer because as I said, I was not exposed to this whole Bayesian framework until I went to college, right? And only because I went to college in this field. What if I had either not gone to college or not gone in this field? I might have no idea that this whole framework even exists. And then I'd be like, what are you talking about? And so I do think we need to spread awareness. And then once that is a you know, a thing, then we can talk about specifically, okay, let's make these priors visible. And then the ultimate goal will be to live happier together. Because as you said or implied, or what maybe I implied it, a lot of this suffering is inflicted by other people on other people. There's no need for that, you know what I'm saying? It's literally needless. We don't even disagree. We just think we disagree. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Cool. Well, perfect time to almost end the show because I, I still have the last two questions I okay. ask every guest at the end of the show. Maybe just before that. So if people are interested in following you and so on, everything will be in the show notes. And maybe which projects are you most excited about for the coming month? Month. Well, <laughs> so what we're doing, what we're working right now has nothing. Well, that's not true, but it's using a different stimulus material. We use music uh, for, and, but it goes similar, similar ways. Basically, we look at like, to make a long story short, the music you like, you like for certain reasons, but not for the reasons you think. We can show in our study that it has very little to do with the actual waveforms in the music, more like with what you associate with that. But what you associate to music might be different than what I associate with. So it's a similar like thing, but with a totally different stimulus material. Okay, nice. And I'm very excited about that because it's the same story again, but with something on a surface level totally different. Let's say like music, you know. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Definitely let me know when that's out. And maybe that will be worth another episode. Sure, happy to do it. But what I'm saying is, isn't it striking that how you feel about some music and literally what emotions it evokes has very little to do with like the actual music, but with like what you associate with the music. That's already freaking me out. Stop here. <laughs> it's like, and I mean, then I can also imagine that with food, right? Right. Is that the kind of food that you choose and that you want to like good point. eat a lot or, you know, stress disorder related to food can actually be related to stuff that's completely different than actually the food. Correct. It's like, it's not about the food. It's, it's not about the dress. It's not about the socks or the Crocs. It's about these deeper issues. You're 100% right. And it's a little scary to think about that. Yeah. It's like accessing parts of yourself that you didn't even know were there. And they're influencing you. They influence your perception. Oh, yeah. And behavior. And behavior, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, but at the same time, it's really awesome if we can get there because it's like, okay, that's cool. Now we know and we can decide what we can do about that. A hundred percent. Awesome. Well, okay. Before letting you go, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Okay. I would have zillion questions left, but <laughs> that's life. <laughs> so first one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? You mean in the world or in science or both? Up to you. Okay. I have to be honest with you. I don't think I can just pick one because they are related. But let me mention three that are pretty much equally important in my mind. One is the scaling problem. And that is the idea in a small society of 100 people, which is what humanity spent 99.99% in, that we evolved in, 100, 250 people. There are very few issues with like credit and like responsibility and all of that. Yes. In the modern world, you could make a bad decision, but I, I paid a price for that. So society isn't really scale. Let's say you advocate for bad policies that rise crime, but I didn't get mugged. But you are, you know, you can get the virtue signal on the internet that you are a good person. That's unfair, right? I get mugged because of your bad choices. That's the problem of society. So it's basically responsibility and incentives don't scale well in society. And this is, as far as I can tell, an unskilled, unsolved problem. Related to that, in general, we have a lot of evolutionary heritage, yes, that made sense in the evolutionary environment. For instance, this reliance on prior to act quickly so that you can eat something as opposed to being eaten, Right. Yes. In the modern world, we should maybe have a higher priority on like accuracy and being correct. So, but evolution is not going to debug that. So we need to find another way of getting there. And the third, which might seem unrelated, but it's very dear to my heart. Remember I talked about cognitive diversity. Well, there are some people that don't have a sense of morality at all or conscience. They don't feel, they would hurt you. They don't feel bad at all. They would feel good that they. Oh yeah. Oh yes. 
they would feel good that they got away with something. And that's called psychopathy in, you know, so many, like it's, I don't like that term for many reasons. We can maybe do a different show about that. But basically the bottom line is that there are people out there who don't respect values, values of virtues. They'll just see everything as a game. And basically no matter what economic system you adopt, they will be hijacked immediately by people like that as long as you have them running around. Yeah. But that's a long story, but those are the three, yes. Okay. That are basically all equally important. I would like them all solved and solving them might be even interrelated. You can't really solve one of them without solving the other ones too. So maybe they're the trifecta together. Okay, nice. I love it. And also related to what you're already doing, so I'm not surprised. And second question, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? Also, really, there's a tie. It's a tie. So I'm going to say uh, several of them that I would. From the psychological realm, it would be Gustav Theodor Fechner. He was kind of the first psychophysicist. And if that's surprising, you might look want to look into that. So maybe he basically started his whole, he was a physicist. He started his whole psychophysical investigation of, of the mind with clearly defined physical stimuli. More broadly, Leonardo, right? Leonardo da Vinci, yes. Who can go wrong with that? Like genius, yes. Other than that, John van Neumann definitely would be a very interesting conversation. And underrated, uh, Leo Szilard. Leo Szilard. He's kind of like the mind behind the mind, you know, the mind behind the bomb, behind the chain reaction. If he hadn't written so much already, I would also add Richard Hamming, but I kind of know what he would say from that. Or Charles Munger, who already came up, but he already wrote so much that I kind of know what he would say. So I'll stick with those four. Uh, Gustav Theodor Fechner, Leonardo, John von Neumann, and Leo Szilard. With those four, you, I would be happy with any of those four. We put them all in a hat and draw at random. I'd be happy with all four. Okay. Well, if you have the four of them, it's, it's a party. It's not a dinner anymore. It's okay. Bayesian party. Yes. But I would be happy with either one of them. And I guess... Maybe you could add Bayes, but the problem with Bayes is he wouldn't even know he did what he did, you know? So he died yeah, without, no. without, without publishing it. So he would be very surprised. No, Laplace would be... He'd be like, why am I at this dinner? What's happening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, what? I didn't yes. do anything. Yes, yes. He would be very surprised. Yeah, Laplace is actually interesting. But again, he also published so much that I have a pretty good idea what he would say, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, thank you, Pascal. As my prior was that I would really enjoy that and would learn a lot and... Yeah, the data didn't contradict my prior, so I guess, yeah. <laughs> That's good. So we will quick over your prior. That's wonderful. And by the way, same here. I was looking forward to this and I'm very happy with it. Awesome. Well, great to hear that. And um, by the way, if you have any guest recommendations for, like, you understand what the podcast is about. If you have guest recommendations, definitely shoot me an email and... I will do that. I have the show notes. One is Alan Stocker. He did that motion prior and Conrad Curling. He did the motor prior. If you haven't had them on already, you should have them on your show and tell them I said so. They will know that they're very busy, but they will they will have a higher likelihood to say yes. Yeah, no, definitely. So as usual, I put resources and a link to your website and also the show notes for these episodes are going to be huge. So that's cool for anyone who wants to dig deeper. Thank you again, Pascal, for taking the time and being on this show. Wonderful. Of course. Thank you. Pleasure was mutual. Thank you. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a... Good Bayesian, change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid foundation.